Chapter 5, Part 2 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. Section 7. Conscious of his many shortcomings as a merchant, and undaunted by the unfortunate complications from which he had just been released, Lincoln returned to his books. Rowan Herndon, with whom he had been living, having removed to the country, he became for the first time a sojourner at the tavern, as it was then called, a public house kept by Rutledge, Onstad, and Alley in succession. It was a small log-house, he explained to me in later years, covered with clapboards and contained four rooms. It was second only in importance to the store, for there he had the opportunity of meeting passing strangers, lawyers and others from the county seat, whom he frequently impressed with his knowledge as well as wit. He had, doubtless, long before determined to prepare himself for the law, in fact, had begun to read Blackstone while in the store, and now went at it with renewed zeal. He borrowed law books of his former comrade in the Black Hawk War, John T. Stewart, who was practicing law in Springfield, frequently walking there to return one and borrow another. His determination to master any subject he undertook, and his application to study, were of the most intense order. On the road to and from Springfield he would read and recite from the book he carried open in his hand, and claimed to have mastered forty pages of Blackstone during the first day after his return from Stewart's office. At New Salem he frequently sat barefooted under the shade of a tree near the store, poring over a volume of Chitty or Blackstone, sometimes lying on his back, putting his feet up the tree, which provokes one of his biographers to denote the latter posture as one which might have been unfavorable to mental application in the case of a man with shorter extremities. That Lincoln's attempt to make a lawyer of himself under such adverse and unpromising circumstances excited comment is not to be wondered at. Russell Godby, an old man who still survives, told me in 1865 that he had often employed Lincoln to do farm work for him, and was surprised to find him one day sitting barefoot on the summit of a woodpile and attentively reading a book. This being an unusual thing for farm hands in that early day to do, I asked him, relates Godby, what he was reading. I'm not reading, he answered. I'm studying. Studying what? I inquired. Law, sir, was the emphatic response. It was really too much for me, as I looked at him sitting there proud as Cicero. Great God Almighty, I exclaimed, and passed on. But Lincoln kept on at his studies. Wherever he was, and whenever he could do so, the book was brought into use. He carried it with him in his rambles through the woods and his walks to the river. When night came, he read it by the aid of any friendly light he could find. Frequently he went down to the cooper's shop and kindled a fire 
out of the waste material lying about, and by the light it afforded read until far into the night. One of his companions at this time relates that, while clerking in the store or serving as postmaster, he would apply himself as opportunity offered to his studies if it was but five minutes' time, would open his book, which he always kept at hand, study it, reciting to himself, then entertain the company present or wait on a customer without apparent annoyance from the interruption. Have frequently seen him reading while walking along the streets. Occasionally he would become absorbed with his book, would stop and stand for a few moments, then walk on, or pass from one house to another, or from one crowd or squad of men to another. He was apparently seeking amusement, and with his thoughtful face and ill-fitting clothes was the last man one would have singled out for a student. If the company he was in was unappreciative, or their conversation at all irksome, he would open his book and commune with it for a time, until a happy thought suggested itself, and then the book would again return to its wanted resting place under his arm. He never appeared to be a hard student, as he seemed to master his studies with little effort, until he commenced the study of the law. In that he became wholly engrossed, and began for the first time to avoid the society of men, in order that he might have more time for study. He was not what is usually termed a quick-minded man, although he would usually arrive at his conclusions very readily. He seemed invariably to reflect and deliberate, and never acted from impulse so far as to force a wrong conclusion on a subject of any moment. It was not long until he was able to draw up deeds, contracts, mortgages, and other legal papers for his neighbors. He figured conspicuously as a pettifogger before the justice of the peace, but regarding it merely as a kind of preliminary practice, seldom made any charge for his services. Meanwhile, he was reading not only law books, but natural philosophy and other scientific subjects. He was a careful and patient reader of newspapers, the Sangamon Journal, published at Springfield, Louisville Journal, St. Louis Republican, and Cincinnati Gazette being usually within his reach. He paid a less degree of attention to historical works, although he read Rollin and Gibbon while in business with Barry. He had a more pronounced fondness for fictitious literature, and read with evident relish Mrs. Lee Hintz's novels, which were very popular books in that day, and which were kindly loaned him by his friend A. Y. Ellis. The latter was a prosperous and shrewd young merchant who had come up from Springfield and taken quite a fancy to Lincoln. The two slept together, and Lincoln frequently assisted him in the store. He says that Lincoln was fond of short, spicy stories, one and two columns long, and cites as specimens Cousin Sally Dillard, Becky Williams' Courtship, The Down Easter and the Bull, and others, the very titles suggesting the character of the productions. He remembered everything he read, and could afterwards without apparent difficulty relate it. In fact, Mr. Lincoln's fame as a storyteller spread far and wide. Men quoted his sayings, repeated his jokes, and in remote places he was known as a storyteller 
before he was heard of either as lawyer or politician. It has been denied as often as charged that Lincoln narrated vulgar stories, but the truth is he loved a story, however extravagant or vulgar, if it had a good point. If it was merely a ribald recital and had no sting in the end, that is, if it exposed no weakness or pointed no moral, he had no use for it, either in conversation or public speech. But if it had the necessary ingredients of mirth and moral, no one could use it with more telling effect. As a mimic he was unequaled, and with his characteristic gestures he built up a reputation for storytelling, although fully as many of his narratives were borrowed as original, which followed him through life. One who listened to his early stories in New Salem says, his laugh was striking. Such awkward gestures belonged to no other man. They attracted universal attention, from the old sedate down to the schoolboy. Then in a few moments he was as calm and thoughtful as a judge on the bench, and as ready to give advice on the most important matters. Fun and gravity grew on him alike. Lincoln's lack of musical adaptation has deprived us of many a song. For a ballad or a doggerel, he sometimes had quite a liking. He could memorize or recite the lines, but someone else had to do the singing. Listen to one in which he shows how St. Patrick came to be born on the 17th of March. Who composed it or where Lincoln obtained it, I have never been able to learn. Ellis says he often inflicted it on the crowds who collected in his store of winter evenings. Here it is. The first factional fight in old Ireland, they say, was all on account of St. Patrick's birthday. It was somewhere about midnight without any doubt, and certain it is it made a great rout. On the eighth day of March, as some people say, St. Patrick at midnight he first saw the day, while others assert twas the ninth he was born. Twas all a mistake between midnight and morn. Some blame the baby, some blame the clock, some blame the doctor, some the crowing cock. With all these close questions, sure no one could know whether the babe was too fast or the clock was too slow. Some fought for the eighth, for the ninth some would die. He who wouldn't see right would have a black eye. At length these two factions so positive grew, they each had a birthday, and Pat he had two. Till Father Mulcahy, who showed them their sins, he said none could have two birthdays but as twins. Now, boys, don't be fighting for the eight or the nine. Don't quarrel so always. Now, why not combine? Combine eight with nine? It is the mark. Let that be the birthday. Amen, said the clerk. So all got blind drunk, which completed their bliss, and they've kept up the practice from that day to this. As a salesman, Lincoln was lamentably deficient. He was too prone to lead off into a discussion of politics or morality, leaving someone else to finish the trade which he had undertaken. One of his employers says, 
he always disliked to wait on the ladies preferring he said to wait on the men and boys i also remember he used to sleep on the store counter when they had too much company at the tavern he wore flax and toe linen pantaloons i thought about five inches too short in the legs and frequently had but one suspender no vest or coat he wore a calico shirt such as he had in the blackhawk war coarse brogans tan color blue yarn socks and straw hat old style and without a band his friend ellis attributed his shyness in the presence of the ladies to the consciousness of his awkward appearance and the unpretentious condition of his wearing apparel it was more than likely due to pure bashfulness on one occasion continues ellis while we boarded at the tavern there came a family consisting of an old lady her son and three stylish daughters from the state of virginia who stopped there for two or three weeks and during their stay i do not remember of mr lincoln's ever appearing at the same table with them as a society man lincoln was singularly deficient while he lived in new salem and even during the remainder of his life he never indulged in gossiping about the ladies nor aided in the circulation of village scandal for a woman he had a high regard and i can testify that during my long acquaintance with him his conversation was free from injurious comment in individual cases freer from unpleasant allusions than that of most men at one time major hill charged him with making defamatory remarks regarding his wife hill was insulting in his language to lincoln who never lost his temper when he saw a chance to edge a word in lincoln denied emphatically using the language or anything like that attributed to him he entertained he insisted a high regard for mrs hill and the only thing he knew to her discredit was the fact that she was major hill's wife at this time in its brief history new salem was what in the parlance of large cities would be called a fast place and it was difficult for a young man of ordinary moral courage to resist the temptations that beset him on every hand it remains a matter of surprise that lincoln was able to retain his popularity with the host of young men of his own age and still not join them in their drinking bouts and carousals i am certain contends one of his companions that he never drank any intoxicating liquors he did not even in those days smoke or chew tobacco in sports requiring either muscle or skill he took no little interest he indulged in all the games of the day even to a horse race or cockfight at one eventful chicken fight where a fee of twenty-five cents for the entrance of each fowl was assessed one bap mcnab brought a little red rooster whose fighting qualities had been well advertised for days in advance by his owner much interest was naturally taken in the contest as the outcome of these contests was generally a quarrel in which each man charging foul play seized his victim they chose lincoln umpire relying not only on his fairness but his ability to enforce his decisions in relating what followed i cannot improve on the description furnished me in february eighteen sixty five 
by one who was present they formed a ring and the time having arrived lincoln with one hand on each hip and in a squatting position cried ready into the ring they tossed their fowls babs red rooster along with the rest but no sooner had the little beauty discovered what was to be done than he dropped his tail and ran the crowd cheered while bap in disappointment picked him up and started away losing his quarter and carrying home his dishonored fowl once arrived at the latter place he threw his pet down with a feeling of indignation and chagrin the little fellow out of sight of all rivals mounted a woodpile and proudly flirting out his feathers crowed with all his might bap looked on in disgust yes you little cuss he exclaimed irreverently you're great on dress parade but not worth a damn in a fight it is said how truthfully i do not know that at some period during the late war mr lincoln in conversation with a friend likened mcclellan to bap mcnab's rooster so much for new salem sports while wooing that jealous-eyed mistress the law lincoln was earning no money as another has said he had a running board bill to pay and nothing to pay it with by dint of sundry jobs here and there helping ellis in his store to-day splitting rails for james short to-morrow he managed to keep his head above the waves his friends were firm no young man ever had truer or better ones but he was of too independent a turn to appeal to them or complain of his condition he never at any time abandoned the idea of becoming a lawyer that was always a spirit which beckoned him on in the darkest hour of his adversity someone probably a democrat who voted for him in the preceding fall recommended him to john calhoun then surveyor of the county as suitable material for an assistant this office in view of the prevailing speculation in lands and town lots was the most important and possibly the most profitable in the county calhoun the incumbent was a yankee and a typical gentleman he was brave intellectual self-possessed and cultivated he had been educated for the law but never practiced much after coming to illinois taught school in preference as an instructor he was the popular one of his day and age i attended the school he taught when i was a boy in springfield and was in later years clerk of the city under his administration as mayor lincoln i know respected and admired him after lincoln's removal to springfield they frequently held joint debates on political questions at one time i remembered they discussed the tariff question in the courthouse using up the better part of two evenings in the contest calhoun was polite affable and an honest debater never dodging any question this made him a formidable antagonist in argumentative controversy i have heard lincoln say that calhoun gave him more trouble in his debates than douglas ever did because he was more captivating in his manner and a more learned man than douglas but to resume the recommendation of lincoln's friends was sufficient to induce calhoun to appoint him one of his deputies at the time he received notice of his selection by calhoun 
lincoln was out in the woods near new salem splitting rails a friend named pollard simmons who still survives and has related the incident to me walked out to the point where he was working with the cheering news lincoln being a whig and knowing calhoun's pronounced democratic tendencies inquired if he had to sacrifice any principle in accepting the position if i can be perfectly free in my political action i will take the office he remarked but if my sentiments or even expression of them is to be abridged in any way i would not have it or any other office a young man hampered by poverty as lincoln was at this time who had the courage to deal with public office as he did was certainly made of unalloyed material no wonder in after years when he was defeated by douglas he could inspire his friends by the admonition not to give up after one nor one hundred defeats after taking service with calhoun lincoln found he had but little if any practical knowledge of surveying all that had to be learned calhoun furnished him with books directing him to study them till he felt competent to begin work he again invoked the assistance of mentor graham the schoolmaster who aided him in his efforts at calculating the results of surveys and measurements lincoln was not a mathematician by nature and hence with him learning meant labor graham's daughter is authority for the statement that her father and lincoln frequently sat up till midnight engrossed in calculations and only ceased when her mother drove them out after a fresh supply of wood for the fire meanwhile lincoln was keeping up his law studies he studied to see the subject matter clearly says graham and to express it truly and strongly i have known him to study for hours the best way of three to express an idea he was so studious and absorbed in his application at one time that his friends according to a statement made by one henry mchenry noticed that he was so emaciated we feared he might bring on mental derangement it was not long however until he had mastered surveying as a study and then he was sent out to work by his superior calhoun it has never been denied that his surveys were exact and just and he was so manifestly fair that he was often chosen to settle disputed questions of corners and measurements it is worthy of note here that with all his knowledge of lands and their value and the opportunities that lay open to him for profitable and safe investments he never made use of the information thus obtained from official sources nor made a single speculation on his own account the high value he placed on public office was more fully emphasized when as president in answer to a delegation of gentlemen who called to press the claims of one of his warm personal friends for an important office he declined on the ground that he did not regard it as just to the public to pay the debts of personal friendship with offices that belonged to the people as surveyor under calhoun he was sent for at one time to decide or locate a disputed corner for some persons in the northern part of the county among others interested was his friend and admirer henry mchenry after a good deal of disputing we agreed says the latter 
to send for Lincoln and to abide by his decision. He came with compass, flagstaff, and chain. He stopped with me three or four days and surveyed the whole section. When in the neighborhood of the disputed corner by actual survey, he called for his staff and, driving it in the ground at a certain spot, said, Gentlemen, here is the corner. We dug down into the ground at the point indicated, and lo, there we found about six or eight inches of the original stake, sharpened at the end, and beneath which was the usual piece of charcoal placed there by Rector the Surveyor, who laid the ground off for the government many years before. So fairly and well had the young surveyor done his duty, that all parties went away completely satisfied. As late as 1865, the corner was preserved by a mark and pointed out to strangers as an evidence of the young surveyor's skill. Russell Godby, mentioned in the earlier pages of this chapter, presented to me a certificate of survey given to him by Lincoln. It was written January 14, 1834, and is signed J. Calhoun, S.S.C., by A. Lincoln. The survey was made by Lincoln, says Godby, and I gave him as pay for his work two buckskins, which Hannah Armstrong foxed on his pants, so that the briars would not wear them out. Honors were now crowding thick and fast upon him. On May 7, 1833, he was commissioned postmaster at New Salem, the first office he ever held under the federal government. The salary was proportionate to the amount of business done. Whether Lincoln solicited the appointment himself, or whether it was given him without the asking, I do not know, but certain it is, his administration gave general satisfaction. The mail arrived once a week, and we can imagine the extent of time and labor required to distribute it, when it is known that he carried the office around in his hat. Mr. Lincoln used to tell me that when he had a call to go to the country to survey a piece of land, he placed inside his hat all the letters belonging to people in the neighborhood and distributed them along the way. He made headquarters in Samuel Hill's store, and there the office may be said to have been located as Hill himself had been postmaster before Lincoln. Between the revenue derived from the post office and his income from land surveys, Lincoln was, in the expressive language of the day, getting along well enough. Suddenly, however, smooth sailing ceased, and all his prospects of easy times ahead were again brought to naught. One Van Bergen brought suit against him and obtained judgment on one of the notes given in payment of the store debt, a relic of the unfortunate partnership with Barry. His personal effects were levied on and sold, his horse and surveying instruments going with the rest. But again a friend, one James Short, whose favor he had gained, interposed, bought in the property, and restored it to the hopeless young surveyor. It will be seen now what kind of friends Lincoln was gaining. The bonds he was thus making were destined to stand the severest of tests. His case never became so desperate but a friend came out of the darkness to relieve him. 
there was always something about lincoln in his earlier days to encourage his friends he was not only grateful for whatever aid was given him but he always longed to help someone else he had an unfailing disposition to succor the weak and the unfortunate and was always in his sympathy struggling with the underdog in the fight he was once overtaken when about fourteen miles from springfield by one chandler whom he knew slightly and who having already driven twenty miles was hastening to reach the land office before a certain other man who had gone by a different road chandler explained to lincoln that he was poor and wanted to enter a small tract of land which adjoined his that another man of considerable wealth had also determined to have it and had mounted his horse and started for springfield meanwhile my neighbors continued chandler collected and advanced me the necessary one hundred dollars and now if i can reach the land office first i can secure the land lincoln noticed that chandler's horse was too much fatigued to stand fourteen miles more of a forced march and he therefore dismounted from his own and turned him over to chandler saying here's my horse he is fresh and full of grit there's no time to be lost mount him and put him through when you reach springfield put him up at herndon's tavern and i'll call and get him thus encouraged chandler moved on leaving lincoln to follow on the jaded animal he reached springfield over an hour in advance of his rival and thus secured the coveted tract of land by nightfall lincoln rode leisurely into town and was met by the now radiant chandler jubilant over his success between the two a friendship sprang up which all the political discords of twenty-five years never shattered nor strained about this time lincoln began to extend somewhat his system if he ever had a system in anything of reading he now began to read the writings of Paine, volney and voltaire a good deal of religious skepticism existed at new salem and there were frequent discussions at the store and tavern in which lincoln took part what views he entertained on religious questions will be more fully detailed in another place no little of lincoln's influence with the men of new salem can be attributed to his extraordinary feats of strength by an arrangement of ropes and straps harnessed about his hips he was enabled one day at the mill to astonish a crowd of village celebrities by lifting a box of stones weighing near a thousand pounds there is no fiction either as suggested by some of his biographers in the story that he lifted a barrel of whiskey from the ground and drank from the bung but in performing this latter almost incredible feat he did not stand erect and elevate the barrel but squatted down and lifted it to his knees rolling it over until his mouth came opposite the bung his strength kindness of manner love of fairness and justice his original and unique sayings his power of mimicry his perseverance all made a combination rarely met with on the frontier nature had burnt him in her holy fire and stamped him with the seal of her greatness in the summer of eighteen thirty four lincoln determined to make another race for the legislature 
but this time he ran distinctly as a whig he made it is presumed the usual number of speeches but as the art of newspaper reporting had not reached the perfection it has since attained we are not favored with even the substance of his efforts on the stump i have lincoln's word for it that it was more of a handshaking campaign than anything else rowan herndon relates that he came to his house during harvest when there were a large number of men at work in the field he was introduced to them but they did not hesitate to apprise him of their esteem for a man who could labor and their admiration for a candidate for office was gauged somewhat by the amount of work he could do learning these facts lincoln took hold of a cradle and handling it with ease and remarkable speed soon distanced those who undertook to follow him the men were satisfied and it is presumed he lost no votes in that crowd one dr barrett seeing lincoln inquired of the latter's friends can't the party raise any better material than that but after hearing his speech the doctor's opinion was considerably altered for he declared that lincoln filled him with amazement that he knew more than all of the other candidates put together the election took place in august lincoln's friend john t stewart was also a candidate for the legislative ticket he encouraged lincoln's canvass in every way even at the risk of sacrificing his own chances but both were elected the four successful candidates were dawson who received thirteen hundred and ninety votes lincoln thirteen seventy six carpenter eleven seventy and stewart eleven sixty four in all former biographies of lincoln including the nicolay and hay history in the century magazine dawson's vote is fixed at thirteen seventy and lincoln is thereby made to lead the ticket but in the second issue of the sangamon journal after the election august sixteenth eighteen thirty four the count is corrected and dawson's vote is increased to thirteen ninety dr a w french of springfield is the possessor of an official return of the votes cast at the new salem precinct made out in the handwriting of lincoln which also gives dawson's vote at thirteen ninety at last lincoln had been elected to the legislature and by a very flattering majority in order as he himself said to make a decent appearance in the legislature he had to borrow money to buy suitable clothing and to maintain his new dignity coleman smoot one of his friends advanced him two hundred dollars which he returned relates the generous smoot according to promise here we leave our rising young statesman to take up a different but very interesting period of his history end of section seven recording by bill mosley bernardo texas u s a